They're the joyful agains our children shout on the swings, the exhausting agains of cooking and laundry, and the difficult agains of discipline. So much of what we do as mothers is on repeat. So what if we woke up with clarity, knowing which agains we were called to, and went to bed believing we are faithful in what matters most? We believe God's word is the key to untangle from the confusion and overwhelm we feel. Let's look up together to embrace a motherhood full of freedom and joy. Thank you for joining us for part two of a very important dialogue between Betsy Corning and Tom Strode. I'm Stephanie Hickox, and this is the Again Podcast, brought to you by Entrusted Ministries. Today's focus is the sanctity of life. As I said, it's part two of their discussion, and they speak on such a controversial topic with such care and compassion. I so appreciate that even as we were ending the interview, Mr. Strode said, you know, it's hard for me to stay up to date on all these issues. I can't imagine being a busy young mom, taking care of little ones, and staying on top of what's going on. I thought it was so kind of him to share his time with us and to inform us so we can be mindful and intentional in our choices, our convictions, and also how to be impacting the world around us. Towards the end of the interview, Mr. Strode shares a really thought-provoking statistic on women entering the church. If you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to listen to that and then continue on with part two. And be sure to come back next week to hear an incredible interview with Jen Freckman, where she adds a truly personal touch on the sanctity of life with her story. You will have goosebumps. I have them every time she tells this story. And I was even brought to tears once again at the intentionality of the Lord in caring for his children. And as promised, she has several of her natural solutions kicking off that episode. Without further ado, here is and a very important interview with Betsy Corning and Tom Strode. Bring us up to date, if you would, on what's happening with Roe v. Wade, because obviously it's been challenged. Almost 50 years after the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, where pro-lifers challenged the law, that ruling, I should say, over and over, a couple of times even mm. in the case in 1989, uh, Webster versus, excuse me, Reproductive Health Services, 1992, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. It appeared at one point, based on the papers of justices who had retired after that, that the court had a majority to overturn Roe. But by the time they got to actually issuing a decision, that majority had fallen apart. And in both cases, the court supported some state restrictions, but just basically permitted Roe to continue and abortion to continue throughout the country. But then there was a case that came to the court in 2022 And it was Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. It was a case out of Mississippi. And in that decision, the court ruled five to four that not only was that law of Mississippi's legitimate, but the Roe v. Wade decision was wrongly decided and it struck down Roe v. Wade. Now, of course, what that required is you finally have to have enough justices 
who will actually take that step. And over the years, you know, justices came and went without that taking place. But finally, by 2022, there were five justices who were willing to do that. Clarence Thomas, who'd been on the court for 30 years. Samuel Alito, who'd been on almost 20 years. And then the three justices who were nominated and confirmed during the Trump administration, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. And uh, Samuel Alito wrote the decision for the court, for the majority. And in it, he said, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had damaging consequences. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any provision therein. And he went on to describe Roe as an abuse of judicial authority. He said the court failed to ground its decision in text, history, or precedent. And so what that did was it sent the decision or sent abortion regulation Whatever a state was going to decide, it went back to the states. The federal government did not have any longer authority in that area as far as what was legal. It went back to the pre-Roe situation. Well, this is so interesting and impactful, and you can see how it has divided the country in so many portions, sadly so. And it's interesting because in Entrusted, I know that I talk about this. It's kind of a joke. It's a man that comes to heaven and Peter meets him at the gate and says, why should I let you into heaven? And he says, and he's a scientist and he believes that science is superior and science has accomplished all these things, all these biogenetic things, and they're able to, you know, really create a person. And he says, well, can you create a person out of the dust of the ground? And so the scientist, yes, I'm sure I can. But God takes a handful of dirt and he creates a man just like that out of the dust of the ground. And and then the scientist picks up the dirt and God says, no, get your own dirt. Now, I've heard that before, but the thing about it, how it actually relates today in sort of a chilling way is that that's actually happening. But people, you could insert instead of dirt, DNA. So God created the DNA, and man can't do anything to actually create the DNA, or who knows what they'll be doing. But I think back to the Tower of Babel when it says, there will be no limit to what man will start doing. And to that I say, Lord Jesus, come quickly, (laughs) because it's getting to the realm of really some chilling things that are happening. And you had a quote that you mentioned about how do we do things safely and ethically when we really don't even agree on how we're created. So people would say that, you know, God would say, get your own DNA, but maybe they are getting their own DNA. I've read a lot of things that are happening now in biogenetics and how they're actually able to accomplish a lot of things that we might've really thought were sci-fi. Can you address that a little bit? 
Well, you're right, Betsy. The progress has been made by science and medicine in many ways has been amazing. The kind of surgeries able to do even on children in utero who have maladies that can be corrected. But with that genetic progress and development come a lot of questions and a lot of harms to human life. And the thing we always need to think about as citizens, as Christians, as parents, is the sanctity and dignity of the one who will be affected by the decisions we make. And, and so in all of this, in the genetic engineering, genetic manipulation, all the different things that have been accomplished, I mean, that needs to be foremost. We need to protect human life. And in one of the and so there's prenatal testing that goes on. And unfortunately, that testing not only can learn, although with not, not with 100% success, conditions that an unborn child may have, like Down syndrome, like spina bifida and others. But then what often happens is there, if the child is diagnosed with such a condition, what do you do at that point? And many doctors are going to recommend that that child be terminated, be aborted. And, and so we would say, well, that's, that's wrong. And that child has the right to life and is deserving of protection just as one, much as one who's considered healthy. And who are we to judge what life is worth living and is not worth living? And sadly, you know, with Down syndrome in particular, the diagnoses are not always accurate, but there was a study done that stretched from 1995 to 2011, in which they found in the United States that 67% of the diagnosis of, on unborn children of Down syndrome resulted in abortions. Now, higher figures are used in some European countries, have been in the past like Denmark and Iceland, where there we're talking about 95% to 100% mm. of children with Down syndrome are aborted. And, and that's been a problem. And in fact, some states have been so concerned about it that they have passed laws to protect unborn life in those situations. Um, uh, 11 states, excuse me, eight states have passed laws that ban fetal anomaly abortions. In other words, any anomaly in a, that's a diagnosed in a child, in those states, it cannot be aborted. And it's not that the other states necessarily agree with it. They, for some reason, haven't seen the need to do that. 11 states, even more, have actually banned sex selection abortions, which sounds mm. to us crazy in the United States. That's a problem in countries and has been for years like uh, China and India, but there is some concern among some states that that's a valid concern now. So we have to be concerned about prenatal testing and what the result will be with that. Yes, I agree. And this, I think, is another issue that's happening is 
politics or the government isn't really keeping up closely with the science, just like I said, the public has a difficulty in this regard. And so I think the latest, that was a concern. I, I actually have examples of these from my entrusted class, you know, of these sort of things. But I think the near future, if not of the present, is that you won't even wait for the baby to be conceived. The DNA will be checked before it's fertilized and they will be able to weed out certain disease processes. So then we come to the question of the sanctity of life. How much do we interfere with what should naturally be taking place? And I was reading some science viewpoints recently, and they were saying that, you know, we know that Romans 1 says we do not change the natural for the in unnatural, but they don't see that as unnatural. They see it as natural because of their view of science. So this is another rift just between the Christian worldview and the non-Christian worldview. So are we going to just start making children that eventually all look the same and we'll all be the same and we're all the same level of intelligence and we're all the same this and that? I think that's one of the ethical issues that they're dealing with. But when we think of it as Christians, we see a component there that they don't see in DNA. And that, besides being created in the image of God, is that we have an inherent sin nature. So we cannot prescribe to a person who they're going to be just by their DNA, their genetic coding. And even though we interfere with that, we're still going to, as long as this world exists, because the Bible tells us so, there will be this rebellious nature in man. Mm -hmm. And I know that this, especially for the heart that doesn't believe in God. So as a result of that, we can have rogue scientists all over the world that don't have a worthy cause to, you know, even in this whole situation of the coronavirus, scientists all over the world sort of band together and didn't worry about who got a patent or who got paid so much, they were trying to find the vaccination. And, and in fact, they came through with a vaccination that is completely entirely different than previous vaccinations have been because they used uh, genetic material rather than the introduction of the actual virus. So even that part of science is changing so much. And I think that we really, we really need to understand how we need to to really believe, to know what we believe and why we believe it and stand with our convictions, no matter what the world may think otherwise, even in this area of area of speciesism, which they would call the people, it's a derogatory term, mm -hmm. but people who espouse the sanctity of life, this would be applied to them. Because why do you think life, human life is so special? It's equal with animal life. Here's another quote that I have. Speciesism is often condemned as the same sort of bigotry as racism or sexism. And people who oppose speciesism say that giving human beings greater rights than non-humans is as arbitrary and, get this, as morally wrong as giving white people greater rights than non-whites. So basically they're saying, it's morally wrong, mm -hmm. where we are saying this is what the Bible says and it's morally right. They actually degree, disagree to the level of saying it's a moral issue 
to say that animals are not on the equal level of people. So no sin nature attributed to humans and no value in being made in the image of God. And of course, we would say that all people, all people of every nation, tongue, and tribe are worthy and special, dignified people to be protected before the Lord. Well, in, you're, in talking about scientists and, and how some handle this whole issue, think of the movie Jurassic Park. We were with one of our children and his family for Christmas, and our oldest granddaughter on that side of the family had been wanting to watch Jurassic Park and her parents finally decided, I shouldn't say finally, they decided (laughs) that she was old enough to watch it and she knows I like dinosaurs and so she wanted me to watch it with her. So we watched it end of the year and there's a part in that movie and I, I know many of your listeners have probably seen that movie, the original Jurassic Park movie from 1993. There's a part in the movie when John Hammond, who's played by Richard Attenborough, is explaining what his scientists have accomplished. They've been able to clone dinosaurs by getting the DNA material from mosquitoes who had sucked the blood out of those dinosaurs ages ago. And then those mosquitoes had been discovered and preserved in amber. And, and he's commending to Ian Malcolm, who's played by Jeff Goldblum and some others, who he's brought in to kind of sign off on this new amusement park <laughs> that features dinosaurs. And he's telling them about what great things his scientists have done. And Jeff Goldblum gives him a warning about genetic power. He says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And I think that's kind of a warning to us and we as Christians, but any human being, especially parents who want to have children, need to remember. And, you know, when you come to in vitro fertilization, which is kind of been grown, you know, in popularity over the decades. And right now we have 1 million embryos that are frozen in storage, undetermined what their fate is going to be. And it's not unusual for 12 embryos to be created for one couple, and and not nearly that many are implanted. And after some are implanted, and whether there's success or not, the parents have to decide, what are we going to do? Are we going to keep paying to have these preserved? Are we going to let them be destroyed? Are we going to let them be given to medical research? Well, the one good thing is families or couples who want to have children and are willing to adopt can actually adopt an embryo or embryos and a woman can bring those to term and give birth. And that's been Mm -hmm. duplicated, you know, over and over. And and that's a pro-life ministry in itself. And parents who see that they've got these children, they don't want them, they've allowed them to be created. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and they're in storage, recognizing, you know, we can't let these children die. They are children who are deserving of protection and give them for donation to be implanted in a woman who's willing to give birth and to raise that child as her own or her own with her husband's. And so they're just all these issues we have to think about and, and we need to be aware of young parents or young couples who Mm -hmm. are dealing with infertility need to be aware of those kind of issues before they go down that path. It can certainly create the proverbial slippery slope. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to think ahead on those ethical implications. If we create life, we want to preserve it, protect it, and not have it be destroyed. And so that is something for every young couple to wrestle with and um, know where they stand on these issues. And I think also with abortion, you know, we have a heavy heart for women who may have not really understood the issue in the past and taken part and had an abortion. And we would want them to know that that is not something that God would not forgive. He forgives everything that we repent of. We obviously fall in his mercy and we repent of that and ask for his forgiveness. I think there's so many in in talking with so many women in the country, I realize that that is just a weight that women carry if that has been a part of their past. And we would certainly not wish that for them. We would want them to feel that healing and that restoration with the Lord. And that can certainly happen through taking those actions just quietly, you know, in your own home, just call out to the Lord and, and repent of that action rather than, you know, carrying all that, the weight of that. And, and, you know, I think that, that the Lord has those infants in heaven in some particular way and that someday they will be reunited and we just trust and hope in those things. But what we see here is really a greater divide in the thinking, the ideologies of people and growing more and more so because the ethics behind the choices and the reasoning, the fact that people would start to say that The sanctity of life is actually an immoral issue because it places the dignity of human life above animal life. I mean, it just goes to show how things can be made and to be the opposite of what they are. So we really want to appeal to our listeners to know, to study their Bibles and to know what the Bible says and that we have the biblical conviction to live under the authority of God's word, come what may in this world, and to be careful not to get entangled in medical decisions that may be contrary to those convictions. It's, you know, it's all upon us right now, I feel. Well, I think, Betsy, what you just said was excellent. And there are a number of other issues that abortion was basically the front end of the whole quality of life debate, the whole sanctity of life versus quality of life debate. I mean, we go from the beginning of life with abortion and things like embryonic stem cell research and the genetic things we're talking about with IVF and prenatal testing, go to the end of life with assisted suicide and euthanasia, which, you know, around the world, especially in Europe, is a huge problem. It's a problem here to some extent, but not like over there. 
And so, you know, we have need to think in terms, you know, of not only the preborn child, but others who are vulnerable to having their lives threatened as a result of some viewpoints that we would disagree with. Mm -hmm. And also, just because we're Christian, we're not the only ones who are pro-life. I mean, there Mm -hmm. are atheists who are for life. There are people who wouldn't come at it from our perspective, but they look at it, they recognize what that child is in the womb, and they come to decide that that person is worth protecting. And it's wrong for me, even though I don't believe in God or I don't believe the Bible is my authority, I am going to be pro-life. You'd like them to develop that a little further and say, right. well, where does this really originate at? Right. Uh, might change their thinking. Right. But, you know, I think now, I think we have an opportunity as Christians and as the church specifically in this day that we didn't have to some extent before Roe v. Wade was overturned. Because now every state's going to decide what it what abortion is in it, whether Mm -hmm. it's legal or illegal, how it's going to be restricted. And since the Dobbs decision overturning Roe in June of 2022, so that's about a year and a half, 24 states now have laws that restrict abortion at some point. Mm -hmm. 18 of those restrict abortion or ban abortion throughout pregnancy. And and these states at least have an exception for the life of the mother. If the life of the mother is threatened, then the abortion is permitted in that case. Four of those states are being, those laws are being challenged. One state's law is before the Supreme Court now. It's going to hear oral arguments on an Idaho case because Idaho's law prevents emergency abortions in hospitals where that receive Medicare and the Biden administration, mm. the Department of Justice has challenged that and the Supreme Court has agreed to rule on that. There also, in, as a side note, there's also another case, uh, abortion related case that the Supreme Court's going to argue later this term. Its term normally ends like in late June, but they argue cases up through April typically. And this one involves the abortion pill. Unfortunately, the abortion pill, 53%, so a majority of abortions in this country are now performed through what they call, what proponents call medical abortion. We would call it, I would call it chemical abortion or just the abortion pill. And Mm -hmm. it's a two-step process. It's been around. It's been actually legal, uh, approved by the FDA in 2000, the year 2000. And um, you take one pill, mifepristone, a woman does, and it causes the embryo to release from the uterine wall. And then a couple of days later, you take another pill, misoprostol, that causes the baby to be ejected from the womb. And... uh, And so in 2001, only 5% of abortions in America Mm. were done through that method. As of 2000, I believe it is, 53% are now done. 
and and that's just increasing. Mm-hmm. And so that sets up a whole, a whole new, new problem for how yes. do pro-lifers reach those women in that case. At some point, people won't be traveling or going to a doctor for an abortion. They will just be doing that. You know, we talked about some of these states that have different laws because they're being mandated particularly separately by the states now. And there are some states that are much more open to it. And we talked about Illinois being one of these states. And I was traveling and driving across the bridge from St. Louis, Missouri, to Illinois. And I saw this billboard uh, that said, welcome to Illinois, where you can get a safe legal abortion. And I just about drove off the bridge. I mean, what a what a welcome. Mm-hmm. What a welcome to your state. And it was a billboard put up by some aldermen actually from St. Louis. They spent $1.75 million to give this welcome message to the people crossing the bridge. So as a result, what happens, all the surrounding states that have stricter, greater restrictions, more stringent restrictions on abortion than Illinois, a ton of women, you probably know the exact amount, are now going into Illinois and the same thing that happened with New York in earlier days. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, we welcome all these states, almost half of the states that have acted to protect human life in the womb. But other states have, you know, really become even more uh, abortion promoting. California is notable. Its governor has been welcoming and inviting women to come to their state to have an abortion. New York's con- continues to be a destination state, and, and the states mm-hmm. up in the northeast part of the country don't have abortion bans. And Illinois is unusual in, as opposed to New York and California in that it, unlike those states, is surrounded, as you said, by states that ban abortion. All the states that touch Illinois ban abortion, but they are have become a destination state. Illinois has become a destination state for women seeking abortions from other states that ban it. In fact, I saw a statistic this past week from the Illinois Department of Health and Planned Parenthood that showed that in the first six months after Roe v. Wade was overturned, so we're talking about the last six months of 2022, 17,000 women from 40 states, not not just the neighboring states, but mm. 40 different states traveled to Illinois to have abortions. And as you pointed out from that billboard, you know, in St. Louis, the, uh, you know, there, Illinois is that's being promoted in Illinois and some doctors from other states have gone there to set up abortion practices. Uh And I really appreciated what you said about women. I know women who have had abortions whom God has graciously worked in their lives, saved Mm -hmm. them. They have grown as believers. Uh, They've experienced that forgiveness and healing. And I just want to say amen to what you said that there is hope in Jesus for the woman who's had an abortion, for Mm -hmm. the man who pressured her to have an abortion, for even parents who pressured their daughters to have an abortion, Mm -hmm. for the abortion workers, for the abortion doctors, 
There is salvation in Jesus. Yeah, There's forgiveness. God. And we have the gospel, and that's what people need to hear. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have a great opportunity as a church. And I would say the most important thing we could do as Christians is really be engaged in the church, be active members there, worshiping, learning, teaching, serving, ministering to others. In 2015, LifeWay Research did a survey for CareNet, which was one of the larger, largest pregnancy resource center networks in the country. And it showed that 36% of women had attended church at least once that month at the time of their first abortion. Oh, my. So we don't know the kind of pressure that women are experiencing uh, who are in crisis pregnancies. Um, there was a, a study by the Charlotte Lozer Institute, which is an arm of the Susan B. Uh, Anthony uh, Pro-Life America organization, which is a leading pro-life organization. Charlotte Lozer Institute is a research group, and they did a study just last May that showed that 87% of women said that who had had an abortion said they experienced some form of interpersonal pressure to abort. And 45% of those women reported they experienced high levels of pressure. And so you're right. Women are in crisis. They're in need. The church can meet some of those practical needs that women have. And some women would choose to give birth if they knew how to solve some of the issues they have financially, childcare, and in other areas. And so we really have the opportunity to do that. And I think we need to make the point that we all are sinners and needed to fall on the mercy of the Lord and repent of our sins, which we have to confess and repent mm-hmm. of daily, regularly. And so they're certainly not alone in their situation. And I just, you know, we definitely have a heart for women who find themselves carrying so many burdens that the Lord would not have them have to carry, that they can be uh, freed. They can be free in the Lord. Mm-hmm. So, wow, thank you so much. There's a couple extra things we might mention. You know, when we talked about the frozen embryos, and maybe somebody didn't realize at the time what was happening, and now they feel this, they're faced with this ethical issue. I know one woman in one of my classes who they had this situation, and between her and her husband, they had the conviction that they needed to implant every single embryo. So they had, I believe it was seven more, and none of them took, but in their own consciences, ushered each one into heaven. And so that is how they resolved that. And I think, you know, that's going to be a bigger and bigger problem. And people make decisions perhaps before they even know the Lord or know the ramifications of what's coming up. So we want to be really aware of these issues. You're right. There are places that women can go to donate an embryo or even go to for adoption. Uh, One of those is in Knoxville, Tennessee, the Embryo Donation Center. But I think, you know, in addition to really being involved in our church and ministering to people there and serving people there, 
there are things churches and individual Christians and families can do as well. Certainly supporting or serving at a pregnancy resource center is really an important part of pro-life ministry. There are more than 2,700 of these centers around the country, and they're really on the front lines, you know, and women who walk in there are, are really in need, and they're meeting those needs. They're providing practical needs. They're not only doing pregnancy tests and doing ultrasound imaging for them of their unborn child, which is vital, but they're doing all kinds of training and providing material needs as well. And one way we can do that financially is to actually give to place ultrasound machines in these centers. Um, I worked uh, for years for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and the ERLC has what's called the Psalm 139 Project, Mm. and all the gifts that are given to it go just to provide for these machines and the training of the people at those centers to use them. And adoption or fostering is a vital mm-hmm. pro-life, and it is a vital need indeed. And if we can't do that, we certainly can help and support people who are doing that. And we probably all know people in our churches who are doing that. And of course, seeking to be citizens who seek to affect like state legislation uh, on these issues and to elect pro-life candidates. And because the dignity of life and sanctity of human life is more than just the abortion issue, you know, there may be other ministries that people are drawn to, your listeners are drawn to, Mm -hmm. whether it's helping trafficking victims or refugees, you know, any number of people. Uh, with who are vulnerable, you know, there are organizations out there that are looking for people to come alongside of them. And so, and of course, you know, I'm saying this at the end, but, you know, prayer is so vital. Mm -hmm. And, and so we should pray and ask for God's gracious and powerful work. And we should spread the gospel Yes. Make disciples. Amen to that. Well, Tom, I want to thank you so much for being a part of this and informing our listeners and me. I mean, I learned so much from what you were saying. And I, I think it's really important that we, you know, be up to date on really what's happening in our world. Also be really thinking about terms that are used. And is this term really an action, a good, genuine reflection of what it's trying to portray? And there's lots of times rhetoric that's used to sort of confuse people just in the whole idea of pro-choice. Well, it's my choice. Well, is it your choice? And how does the Lord look at that? So to really be looking at things like that, but we see the great divide in ideology. There's a great delusion over our country and even over the world on what things, what is real and what is true, what is genuine and, you know, what is biblical. And that's just completely thrown out of the equation in so many circumstances. So I, I, I really thank you for that, for bringing us up to date on what is the truth. And I pray that uh, this is really helpful to our listeners. Thank you so much. 
Well, thank you, Betsy. I wanted to say I really appreciate your ministry and what you're doing. Mothers are so vital to the church, to our society, to our world, and it's a challenging role, but I'm thankful for what you and the trusted are doing to help them. We know you're busy, Mama, so we are truly grateful you joined us for this episode of Again. If you're looking for more information about building your home on the foundation of Jesus Christ, head to www.entrustedministries.com to learn more about our study for moms, Entrusted with a Child's Heart. This scripture-saturated study has blessed families around the world, and we want it for you too. Before you go, I want to pray this benediction over you from 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12. We're rooting for you. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Until we meet again.